Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 95. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionTanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. So this is a bit of a return to the roots of Back to Excited in a couple ways, um, mostly because I'm uh, very forgetful and mess some things up. And actually, there's some things that are out of my control, too. So before we begin, I just want to say um, I forgot my external hard drive at school, uh, and I'm not there now. So I don't have the intro or like exit music, which is actually just the same song. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so th this is, you probably just heard the voice to start as opposed to the that thing. Um, secondly, yet last night, I was talk talking to you, Fulman, about this. Um, something in my house started beeping every 30 seconds, and I cannot for the life of me figure out what it is. Yeah, we're a little concerned about Arvin's personal safety, but we established with our combined knowledge of science that if it were an actual alarm going off, it would A, be louder, and B, it would probably have already killed him. Yes, because it's happened so... last night. So I'm pretty sure it's not carbon monoxide, because I have a carbon monoxide detector, and my detectors aren't going off. I think it's actually something that's happening in an adjacent unit, possibly. Um, but we shall see. I mean, if this podcast goes up, you know I, I haven't like had any untimely fate occur to me. Um, so that, I think that's about all we can ask for. Yeah, and, you know, I'm glad because, you know, who else am I going to do a podcast with? I don't know. Exactly. Be a void. Yeah, so I'm if you if you it. hear an intermittent beep every 30 seconds, it's not very loud, so hopefully it's not distracting. Um, but if you hear that, that's that's what it is. Um, I, we did some testing beforehand, and it's very, very, very faint on my tracks, and I'm trying to minimize it to the extent possible. But, uh, yeah, hopefully... Um, you know, we'll return to our normal high level of sound quality in future weeks. <laughs> yeah. This is like when a famous band, which we aren't, uh, goes back and like does like an acoustic show and it's like granny, you can hear the guitar scratches, but it's like, yeah, that was like the raw and cut version. This is our MTV unplugged Nirvana 93. Um, <laughs> you know, like it's exactly the same level of quality. And it's exactly the same level of memorable performance that we will try to bring to you in spite of these technical issues. Yes. Okay. So with all that out of the way, um, how have you been this week? I've been good. Uh, the Leafs did me the courtesy of at least trying to make up for some of their many embarrassments that they've inflicted on us last week by winning three in a row. We all knew that they could because the Leafs are certainly capable of going on runs. They are, at times, almost a good team. They did this the more impressively because they've lost Jake Muzzin for four weeks. So he's hopefully going to be back right in time for the playoffs, as will Morgan Riley, hopefully, as may Ilya Mikhaev, but that's a little more dubious. And also Cody, Cody Cece. Yeah, I mean, that also could happen. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the Leafs have been running a real skeleton crew on defense. My willingness to trade Tyson Berry does look a little bit funny with hindsight because he's like the only guy left on the defense group who's played, I think, over 300 NHL games. And like most of them is under 100. It's like Martin Marincin is the other guy. And so it's been a bit dicey, but the Leafs have kind of pulled through and played some pretty decent hockey. Yeah, they had I mean, a game. Yeah. It's, it's like they have and they haven't in a way, right? Because, you know, if, if they lose say, the Tampa game or the Canucks game. And those are the two games where I think it, they were just pretty even games generally, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so they could have easily, you know, lost one or both of those games. So if they lose those games, we definitely don't feel as happy about the least overall play, even if nothing else really has changed, right? right? I mean, we talked about this last week where, you know, you take the 1,000-foot view and the Leafs still look fine, um, but their play in recent weeks hadn't been very good. Well, their play over this past week wasn't amazing. They weren't, like, blowing teams out. They, they had a really impressive game against Florida, I would say. That, that was the one that was very, very strong. They played well enough against Tampa. They, they started strong and then just completely turtled in the last period. And then the Canucks game was just back and forth even. Um, but, yeah, like, it, it's it's a cliche. But, yeah, winning winning really does cure all. It just makes, even when the play isn't as good, you can, you think a little bit brighter. Yeah, and... That's the bottom line there. I wish the team sometimes... I mean, I am thinking primarily of the Tampa game. I wish the team sort of took it to the opposition more. Uh, 
the Florida game was imp- impressive. That was probably the biggest game of the season to this point in terms of leverage because Florida is our most direct and almost only competition for a playoff spot anymore. Like, it's kind of down to us and them for third in the Atlantic unless Montreal wins, like, 15 in a row. So, it was certainly pretty nice to see that despite a kind of rough start, like, the Leafs got down 3-1 quite early in that game off some pretty bad goaltending, frankly, from Freddie Anderson. You know, it's never only the goalie's fault, but it is to a greater or lesser degree his fault. (laughs) And on that night, I don't think he was doing very well to start. But the team charged back. Uh, They played some really good defensive hockey the rest of the way. Freddie Anderson managed to close the door. And they recovered for a huge regulation win. The result has been that, statistically, the Leafs are now back to being a really strong bet to make the playoffs. You know, picking up six points when your direct competition doesn't over the course of this week, uh, that goes a long way. So, you know, notwithstanding the storm and stress and upset that you were privy to on the last podcast, it's certainly you can feel a lot better about this team at least making it to the playoffs now. It's not guaranteed, but their chances are above 80 pretty much anywhere you look, so that's something. Yeah. Yeah, and it's undeniably a a positive thing. Um, Right? The thing is, NHL positions are so kind of precarious that like a three-game win streak just changes your outlook tremendously right it really does um and similarly you know if the Leafs lose their next three games you know we're back into fretting mode it's just the, so that's why it never really feels like it doesn't feel right now oh the Leafs are, are a lock right but when you consider and we'll talk more about Florida later but when you consider that they have I believe a five-point lead although the Panthers have a game in hand which is today um mm-hmm. A five-point lead and probably the better team versus Florida. Yeah. It, it actually becomes a pretty strong position. Yeah, that's one of the things that maybe you've noticed this too, speaking to our listeners. I, I know obviously Arvin's hip on this stuff. Seemingly quite high probabilities can swing up and down pretty drastically in response to a week's worth of games. And... That's sort of a product of it's not really all that likely for a team with a 45 to 55% chance of winning each game to lose or win them all. But it does happen. You know, like, I think a lot of these models are predicting fairly close games. And so streaks really stand out because they're so far outside what the model expects. They can seem to have a pretty significant effect on the odds. Um that was none the, the more pronounced than in the Florida game where the swing was like 20% in playoff chances for each team because they're now direct competition with each other. And that's about it. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, a satisfying week, at least on the, the scoreboard. The Leafs, oh boy, I, I'm in dangerous psychological territory the last couple of weeks where I keep reading in emotions. But I think the Leafs maybe felt a bit of embarrassment that's guessing. But they've certainly seemed to be a little more physically engaged. Kasperi Kapanen wants to fight everybody in this bar. Uh, I saw Austin Matthews throw a couple of big body checks. That's not something he's done that much heretofore. Uh, and I saw Rasmus Sandin just level a guy, which was <laughs> pretty wild. So, yeah, I don't know if the team is kind of rallying around the flag a little bit in terms of response to not having any defenseman left or just the emergency backup goalie debacle a week or two back, but it's something. There's not a whole lot to convince you that we are going to beat Tampa or Boston in the series. Right now it looks like Tampa. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yeah, and and it's certainly not impossible, right? Like We walked into Tampa and played them pretty even with an underhanded defense core, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And I, like... That game was kind of surprisingly low event for two teams that are known for being elite offensively. Yes, although there was, and I didn't really notice this, Tampa gave up half a dozen odd man rushes to us. Yes. It was remarkable. And I know Tampa's not, you know, they don't make their living on their defense. But I was kind of surprised at how often we got behind their defensemen. That 
might be something to hang your hat on if it comes to the point where we're looking at reasons to think the Leafs can beat the Bolts, which can, you know, there's always a chance. Yeah, and it also so. might have been one of those games where the it was low number of chances, but they were pretty decent chances, and I think there was a decent amount of special teams time in that yeah. game, too, on both mm-hmm. ends. And, of course, we had that uh, beautiful William Nylander goal, which prompted Chris Pronger to say that, you know, how dare he score a goal. That's nice. I would have. Oh, yeah, you know what? Why don't I just... <laughs> I hate that shit. No, and you know? look, we would say this if this wasn't a Leafs 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but basically, like, fuck Chris Pronger. Yeah, he was an asshole. And, like, I'm sorry, like, he made a career off predatory, cheap shot, dirty physical play. He was also really, really good. Don't get me wrong. Granted, he was better because the rules of the game did not respond uh, fully to what a piece of shit he was, but he was really effective. You know, he is a Norris caliber defenseman, but all of that bullshit where it's like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, cut his wrist to the bone because he's having the gall to put the puck in the net. Man, that is the worst instinct in this game. Like, that's the thing that you should be trying left and right to get out of this sport. Because it's a cool way of putting the puck in the net. Everyone's having fun in the highlight. And then the idea is, oh yeah, I'm going to, you know, cheap shot him when the ref isn't looking and teach him a lesson about trying to do his job well. That is garbage. And I wish the league would, you know, like, come down on that sort of stuff in general. Obviously, you know, I'm not saying that there's any point taking a recourse against Chris Bronger, but like... Well, he is a team employee. Yeah. And, you know... Of a divisional rival to the Leafs. Like, it's... I'd put it this way. If Brendan Shanahan said, you know, before our playoff series with Boston, so yeah, if the, the first time Pasternak scores, we're going to, like, take his head off. Yeah. That would draw some ire, and rightfully so. Right now, Pronger was saying, you know, the, the, in the context of the, of the quote, which was on Overdrive, it yeah. was like, oh, what would have happened if this was, like, 1997, right? Right. And it was a back-in-my-day kind of nonsense. Yes. But and still. Like they, uh, Pronger even acknowledged that, yeah, that's like 1997 rules, right? And the, the thing that was a little off-putting was kind of the glamorization of that, where it's like, ha, 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 remember those days you could just fucking kill someone for being good? Yeah, right? well, there's a, honestly, there's a deep resentment in hockey for people doing skillful things. Like, there's legit just an out-and-out feeling that that sort of uh, glory-seeking or illegitimate or something. It's like he put the puck in. You know, he made a cool play to do the thing that he's supposed to do. I don't... Even if you think hot-dogging it is a problem, I don't. But it's like... It's not like he was doing this to, you know, show somebody up. He was doing it to score a goal. <laughs> you know? I just... I, I think that that instinct is really ugly and annoying. And frankly, it is the more frustrating from Chris Pronger because he always got away with too much nonsense. And all of these guys get you know, lionized a few years after they've been out of the league. You know, it's like people forget just what awful players they were in terms of what they did to people. Yeah, and it, it's... Know. Pronger especially, like, there might be some listeners who haven't seen Pronger play, because he, he did retire a decent while ago, and I, I'm, you know, I'm certainly not an aged hockey, you know, watching veteran, but I remember watching Chris Pronger when I was growing up. And I remember being like, I remember being like so annoyed and also so terrified of him because like, yeah. not only was he like incredibly good as you as you said, he was incredibly dirty, but he was also mm-hmm. like no one could really stand up to him because he was the biggest meanest guy. Yeah, he was like the re-embodiment of the '70s Flyers, mm. and even then, like he got suspended an enormous amount for a player of his caliber because normally in the NHL, stars get a pretty easy ride of it. Like, if you were a superstar, which he was, you don't generally get the heavy numbers in terms of games that get given out to enforcers. Pronger was the exception because he was so blatant and so brutal that they had to do something and they still didn't do enough, in my opinion. So, you know, I I mean, this is some some pent-up resentment. Yeah, I I mean, but the other thing is, I guess... The irony of the situation is is Pronger retired in part due to concussion issues, and he's talked openly about how they've lingered and how they've impacted his life on a day-to-day basis. I remember 
there was a, a segment either in Hockey Night in Canada or just a Sportsnet game a few years ago uh, after he retired. I think this is maybe when he was working with the Department of Player Safety, which is another form of oh, of course, <laughs> extreme was. irony. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's like the from what I remember, that piece did not really contend with the fact that Pronger inflicted the same fates on a lot of people. And, of course, that doesn't make yeah. the stuff that he's going through any less, you know, significant and, and hurtful for him and his family. And, you know, it's something that's going, he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life, right? But it, it's... My sympathy is dulled for someone who, you know, made their living deliberately trying to hurt people. And that's exactly what Chris Pronger did. Yeah, and so that... I don't know. There are a lot of bad old memories, but I have to say, you know, I, I complained about this online at the time. I do really resent this idea to kind of wash away and, I don't know, fondly remember all of the bullshit that he pulled, you know, and say like, oh, I remember back in the day, oh, it was pretty wild out there. Man, you know. And, and this is this is separate <laughs> from, you know, oh, he played in a different era and those things were allowed then. Pronger went outside the bounds of what was allowed even in his era, as you as you covered. He got suspended a lot for a star player. To the yeah, point where and, they, um, yeah. you know, when people were making up those um, NHL Department of Player Safety flowcharts, where it was like, oh, you know, did this player do X? I remember there was one, the popular one, where it's like, is this player a star? And the answer to yes was, damn it, Pronger. <laughs> like, that's yep. how well-known he was for being a shithead. Yeah. And right? also, like, his career extended into this recently concluded decade like he was still playing uh quite effectively for the flyers you remember that one year that they made the finals yeah, despite the having run. renter goalies yeah that was pronger and pronger was incredible that year and again also a piece of shit so <laughs> let's get that change. anyway i i just had to kind of get that off my chest this is the residual resentments podcast and raw and uncut and to be clear this is not a phenomenon that is unique to hockey um if you watch soccer and you watch players like neymar or messi who are you know maybe two of the best dribblers of all time they routinely make defenders look stupid neymar especially because messi typically just runs past you uh in a very like efficient way <laughs> like he literally just gets lower than you is faster Bye. than you and is better at controlling the ball than anyone else in history so he's just yeah it's just like later whereas mm -hmm. neymar will like end your life mm. right in the most flashy showboaty way possible but you know he gets the job done he is incredible right but as a result like people take a lot of liberties with him right like they hack mm -hmm. his ankles they you know injure him they, they play really dirty with neymar um and i know people make fun of soccer players but you have to remember they're moving quite fast for be not being on ice and they are also wear like essentially no protection yeah it's like if you get knocked over like running full speed into turf it's like you are going to feel that. Yeah. You know, that's not nothing. Their only protection are shin pads that are roughly the size of your cell phone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it's it's not uncommon across sports, but it's a very damaging mindset because sports are a lot cooler when the players who are the most skilled, who can do the most fun and flashy things, are allowed to do those things. Especially when those things are not just flashy for the sake of flashy, they are cool and also work yeah like th that's what gets me is like he clearly was not trying to just embarrass anybody by scoring this goal you know it was a gorgeous between the legs play and it's like he's trying to win my god what else is he supposed to do so yeah and, and if, also to be fair like through the legs goals are not that rare i, I can they happen i mean jvr has done it a bunch yeah and i can think of like two or three this year um, mm -hmm. didn't Barkov go through the legs on a breakaway? Um, Kachuk has done it twice. Hurdle oh, yeah. famously did it in his four-goal game. Right? Like, there, there's a couple of them every year. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Th yeah. You know. Anyway, so uh, we'll get that off our chest. Uh, while we're, uh, in narrative war territory, something maybe a bit more least-related is, maybe you've noticed this. We think we have, too. There's been a bit of a souring on Mitch Marner lately. I'm not sure we can ever be totally pleased with everyone on the team, <laughs> it feels like. But it seems like there's been some criticism of him the past month-ish or so, in the sense that he's not really pulling his weight. 
you know, I'll preface this by saying I think that that contract is an overpay by about 1.5 to 2 million a year. I've said that before. I haven't really changed on that. But at the same time, I think people sometimes neglect what he brings. It's Varner. You know, you and I were looking at this beforehand and you pointed out there's one particular thing that he's missing that probably explains a lot of the criticism lately. Um, yeah, the goals, right? Yeah. <laughs> It was my dramatic setup for uh, the obvious punchline. But yeah, he just hasn't scored a lot. You know, he's not uh, an especially great goal scorer. I, I think he actually has, like, a not particularly powerful shot. But he gets as many goals as he does because his passing is so dangerous that it opens up opportunities for him. But he's not really a finisher. Yeah, it's um, interesting. He's had, high, he's had high shooting percentages throughout his career, but a poor shot to the... <clears throat> and I guess the obvious counter, like the inverse of that until this year was William Nylander, who super, superficially has a much better shot than Mitch Marner, but mm-hmm. always had lower shooting percentages. And even when you adjust for like expected goals, Marner graded out as a better shooter than Nylander, um, despite their shots being kind of, you know, Nylander's was much stronger. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that has to do with, as you said, the kind of the threat of Marner's other weapons kind of opens up room and... He, he's, like, a very crafty shooter, and he's a smart shooter, I think, right? Like, he, mm-hmm. he deeks a lot. He's able to get the goalie out of position, things like that. Yeah, he, he picks his spots well, and as a result, he's able to do more. And, and as you said, you know, like, his ability to deke, like, his puck handling is A+. So there's more that goes into setting up a powerful shot than just having the snap of the wrists. Yeah, and his release, yeah. I think, is... is it, the shot isn't necessarily powerful, but... It's a relatively quick release. It's not like mm-hmm. it takes him forever in a day to, to get it loaded. His, his forays into being a one-time threat on the power play have been decidedly um, mixed, shall we say. Oh, man. Every time that happens, it, I can't get this out of my head. It's like when a famous actor tries to be in a band. It's like, this isn't what you're for, man. You're very good at all sorts of other things. You can't do a one-timer at an especially good level for an NHL power play. And that's okay. It'd be nice if we could get that kind of threat there to add even more weapons, but, you know, not everyone can be amazing at everything, even Mitch Marner, who is very, very good at certain particular things. One thing I will say, um, if you haven't played hockey, a one-timer looks like one of those things that is easy, but it's, like, stupidly hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, you have to have very good timing. And to do one at, like, a high-end NHL level, like, to where you consistently get it where you're trying to put it with power, with the puck coming into your wheelhouse pretty quickly, that's hard even for a lot of NHL players. Yeah, I remember Justin Bourne, who of course was a quite high-level player himself, right, in the grand scheme of things, um, mm-hmm. saying that like on one-timers, he could get it, he could basically say lower half or upper half, and he yeah. could get it there with a reasonable amount of power, right? Yeah. But even then, that's probably not NHL-level power. And then you look at a guy like Ovi, who could probably go, he could probably, instead of going halves, he could probably go quadrants. Right and say I can get yeah. it there in that quadrant, most of the time with good power, and well, when you're Ovi and you're as strong as he is and have as good technique as he is, a, a lot of power for him is a stupid amount of speed. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, not related to the, not unrelated to the fact that he's probably the best goal scorer of all time is that weapon. You know, like it's really hard to duplicate. He has the best one timer that I think I've ever seen, and so, yeah, I mean, that is said, that's. I, I kind of don't blame Marner for trying that a little bit just for the sake of diversity. You know, there's some added value in terms of proving to them that you're not never going to shoot. But yeah, he's very, very good at other things. And I do think that Marner has a way of like the quintessential Mitch Marner game. And I think it was Katja who said this where it's like, he, you know, he doesn't appear to do a whole lot and then he finishes and you look and he has two assists, you know, like, He's very good at sometimes not visually standing out as being a huge contributor or, you know, looking more like a perimeter player, but then being effective, being on effective lines, racking up points, that sort of thing. And, you know, I I think that that's fine. That's perfectly good because we know that he's contributing, even if it's not always in the flashy way that he does every now and then at his best. He also has some games where he is like just visually like how is he making these passes, mm-hmm. right? Like he, 
but yeah, it, 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 this month, where I think kind of the criticism of Marner's kind of picked up, he has like 14 points in 15 games. Yeah. It's just most of them are assists. And I think one of the goals was an empty net goal. A couple of the assists are on empty netters. Although the one last night to Hyman was a genuinely good assist as far as assists on empty netters go. Yeah, like that was impressive and it was a meaningful contribution. But yeah, I think Marner... I don't know, Marner this year, he's been a part of very successful lines in a way that hasn't... Um, it was obviously true last year, but last year he spent so much time with Tavares that it was a little bit difficult to see who was really driving the bus, and his minutes away from Tavares weren't as good, in part because mm-hmm. a lot of them were probably post-PK minutes. Yeah. Um, but this year, I think for the first time, like the play-driving stats like RIPM have him as a really, really strong play-driver. Um, actually, mm-hmm. like, close to the best on the team, and in the top 40 or so in league-wide. Yeah. Right? And actually, ahead of William Nylander, um, funnily enough, which I still kind of think... This is what if you look at XG, if you look at Corsi Nylander's ahead. I still kind of think um, Nylander is a better 5-on-5 play driver than Marner, just because he is now essentially a two-year track record of being elite or close to it um, at this, as opposed to uh, Marner, who's, you know, somewhat less... Um, somewhat less long of a track record of being a expected goals play driver, specifically. But yeah, it, it's. I think he's had a fine year, right? Um, certainly when you, when you back out to, again, the, the high level, his point pace is still good. He's always going to be a point producer, always, right? Like he, he mm-hmm. just, he always has the puck, even on his bad days, and he makes enough passes, and he's on a good enough team that he's just going to always rack up assists, even in games where he's not that noticeable. Mm-hmm. He is incredibly tilted towards assists, right? To um, yeah. a really, really notable degree. Um, he has he has 15 goals this year. I think a couple of them are empty netters. And, he, you know, I think last last year he scored 26 goals. It wouldn't shock me if he never really gets above that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, it's zero or one times in his career that he's a 30-goal man. But it also wouldn't totally astonish me if one year he hit 100 points. You know, like, he's just very good at what he's good at. And to be fair, like, if he were also, like, a premier goal scorer, suddenly we're like, hey, is this guy, like, the best offensive player in the world? Or, yeah. Know, like, he, like he's, he's challenging McDavid or something at that he's point. He's an absurdly good passer. Yeah. Right? He's one of the best passers in the league. Um, and if you look at, you know, historical numbers, what he's done at his age in terms of assists is nearly unprecedented by anyone who is not a Hall of Famer. Yeah. Like, extremely, extremely good production. And, you know... I, I do, I, I hate to sound like all we are the world and stuff, and certainly everyone is free to criticize players as they see fit. I don't think Mitch Marner is the problem. You know, I think that it's it's frustrating that we overpaid him. Probably, again, by like, you know, maybe $2 million a year. I'd love to have the extra money, but he's still really, really good. And to some extent, it's not, you know, it's not on him to pass up life-changing amounts of money or to do as well as he can. It's on him to perform, and he does perform. So, yeah. I, I feel like we're getting a little bit leave Britney alone, but, like, Mitch Marner certainly is doing about what you would ask of him, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. It, it's... And, I mean, I get the criticism of, okay, he's, make, he's making 11, 11 mil or 10.9 or whatever, right? Um... Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he has to be one of the best in the league, or you 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 feel, or it's reasonable to feel that way, um, in order for him to be worth it. I, I think, you know, he, he's not he's not worth that money, but he is just a genuinely spectacular player, right? Like, yeah. he, he's really good. Um, I think all, all this year has made clear, it's just the gap between him and Austin Matthews is smaller than the gap between him and William Nylander. But that's mm. that's also fine because hey, like William Nylander is also an elite player who is one of the best in the league, right? And I'm glad Nylander's finally getting the kind of the point totals and the, and the goal total specifically that yeah agree with that. But yeah, he is you know they're both just amazing players, and there's always been this kind of like Nylander or Marner dichotomy in the fan base. It's been a weird cultural split in terms of, like, the Nylander faction 
almost feels like it's like they're younger, they're politically left, they're, you know, um, probably more attuned to uh, advanced statistics and stuff like that. And then you have this faction of the Marner fan base that is like kind of older and more resentful, think he's better than Matthews, think Nylander tried to be traded. And it's very weird um, just seeing that kind of angry split along so many lines that, you know, superficially don't have a lot to do with how good are these two hockey players? Um, you know, that's that comment is certainly a function of I spend too much time on Twitter, but it's weird to see uh, in the same way. You know, they're both very, very good players. I think Nylander's contract is better value. I think Marner is a better player. That's yeah, yeah, where I, I'd come I, down I, on that's it. That's probably where I'd come down on it too. I, I don't, I don't think it's a huge gap, uh, nope. as I just alluded to. Um, actually, at, at five on five, I think there's an argument Nylander's a better player. Um, if he, but they're very close. I think on mm. the power play, Marner is. Uh, we've talked about this before. Marner is one of the best power play players on on, on planet Earth. Yeah, like and he is. You, you know, we've talked about how good he is in all of those other. Weird states, including like three on three, four on four, stuff like that. And, you know, that's more trivial. That's not when most of the game is played, but he's really, 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 really good at it. You know, like he dominates in those game states. Yeah. Um, and and with, so. with Marner, I, I think I made this point before. If Team Canada existed, Marner would be on the first unit power play on his preferred role. Like, you, you Team Canada would build their power play around, like, Mitch Marner and Connor McDavid. Yeah. And then just. It's almost like LeBron light, almost, to borrow an analogy for another sport. It's like, if you're building a power play for Mitch Marner, Mitch Marner and four shooters kind of works. Like, you really don't have to do all that much else. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I certainly think that he's having a, a pretty good year. Like, the Leafs have had certainly their ups and downs. I don't think the big four have been the problem. I think they've been the cost of a lot of the money and you can say by a knock-on effect if we weren't paying them so much maybe we would spend the money elsewhere and then we would have fewer problems up and down the lineup but I don't think you can be really that dissatisfied with the performance of any of them except John Tavares early on and he's mostly rebounded so yeah I think that that's something positive yeah. Maybe we're generally talking about that depth, actually, because we were going to talk about this, is the Alexander Kerfoot thing. Yes. So, at this point, the Leafs have kind of... That Austin Matthews line is set in stone, right? Looks I don't like think it. it's really changing. We've seen Hyman on other on like the, the Tavares line, and he works well there. Zach Hyman is, you know, the perfect complementary player to two stars maybe not the per you, maybe like brendan gallagher is probably the perfect complimentary player to two stars because gallagher is a star himself but among mm. role players a guy with hyman's skill set is perfect for any of the leafs you know dynamic duos yeah so you know you can kind of treat that line as set in stone the second line has been Tavares, nylander and someone else right and it's kind of gone a couple ways with who it is um Ilya mikhaev played there until his injury and that line was very good mm -hmm. then Kerfoot kind of hopped in for a bit Pierre Engvall hopped in for a bit and recently it's, it's gone I guess in the past game it went to Kerfoot yeah. after I think in the previous two Kerfoot was playing with Kapanen as a third line center yeah which and hmm, it's perplexing to me that we don't do that you know Kerfoot is the third line center makes a lot of sense to me because I think the third line is stronger that way and I think that you can put a lot of guys on left wing with Nylander or Tavares and have them work. Yeah, pretty much. And it, it's just... With Kerfoot there... So, one thing we talked about last year was kind of the way... The, the value proposition of the Leafs, the way they said in, you know, in their head, this is how we're going to win games, is we can toss out three center right-wing pairings that are going to be better than your team's, you know, equivalent line. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and you will not be able to match up with those three lines, with all three of them, right? Now, Kerfoot is not Nazem Kadri. He's not as good as Nazem Kadri. But the idea behind that trade is you get, you know, ideally, 75% of Nazem Kadri for 65% of the price. The cap hits might not be exactly that, but that's the idea, right? You downgrade a bit from Kadri, but you still get a good third-line center. And Kapanen, you know, for all his struggles this year, is very obviously better than a third, an average third-line winger. 
Yeah, I, I think people have actually... Kapanen has a way of being frustrating because his peaks and valleys are so pronounced in each direction, but I think that he's certainly shown a lot of the value that he gets. And I think if we do come to the point that we do end up trading him, he's the guy I see as being tradable but pulling a meaningful return. He's a very good player at what he does. Yes. So, mm-hmm. so the Leafs can have a baby version of that with Kerfoot and Kapanen, I think. And I think, typically, those two have done pretty well together. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and I think Kerfoot is just better at center than he is as the winger to two stars. And part of that is Kerfoot's skill set. Right? Kerfoot, I think what he does best offensively is passing. Mm-hmm. Right? He is not a shooter. He has a high shooting percentage, kind of in the same way that Tyler Bozak typically had a high shooting percentage. He's, he shoots from good areas of the ice. And he shoots when, you know, there's almost no other choice. Right. Um, but he's a passer, first and foremost. He's a decent zone entry guy, and he's a passer. But with Tavares and Nylander, you have two guys who are just better at passing and are going to dominate the puck because of their play style. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I'm putting... It, going to that Zach Hyman principle, the thing I want next to Tavares and Nylander, ideally, is a digger and someone who can get into the front of the net and, you know, poke pucks home and has decent hands. Or JVR would be perfect, actually. Right? He's, again, another yeah. super skilled guy. Not physically imposing the way Hyman is, who doesn't use his body that way, but is far more skilled and a very, very good net front player. Maybe the best or second best in the league behind Joe Pavelski. Mm-hmm. So... It's just, Kapanen, sorry, um, Kerfoot with Tavares and Nienander is good, but I don't think the drop-off between them and Pierre Engvall there is huge. Meanwhile, I don't think we have anyone right. who can play third-line center as well as Kerfoot can, especially with Kapanen, who's going to be a mainstay on that line for at least for the rest of the year, because Kapanen needs a good passer. Yeah, someone who can get it to him so he can go for a rush is one thing, and, you know, he's not going to be the pass-first guy on the line. He is going to shoot it every chance he gets. Yeah, so, I mean, with... So, yeah. Captain and Kerfoot together have good numbers, too. 53.5% Corsi, 52% expected goals. That's quite good for a third line. Right? And mm-hmm. then, if you look at how Nylander or Tavares do with and without Kerfoot, there's almost no difference in every respect except for goals four. Right? Um, and right. they have... Goals four percentage, rather. Nylander and Tavares without Kerfoot have like an 843 on I save percentage. And I'm comfortable saying that that is not really their doing. And that that's across, you know, 160 minutes. So it's not a big sample, but it, it's it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I would just put Engvall on there until Mikheyev gets back. And then when Mikheyev gets back, put Mikheyev there, assuming he is, you know, perfectly healthy. Yeah, I think that that's a reasonable way to do it. And it's interesting to me that Keefe doesn't. You know, like he's shied away from that repeatedly. And, you know, there are some people kind of crowing about how they they don't think Kerfoot can play center. And I just don't think that that's true. Yeah. I think we have a lot of evidence that he can. Yeah, the data back, like, Kerfoot playing center with decent wingers has, has been fine. It's been a good third line. Yeah. Right? Um, Keefe may not like him at center for reasons that are unknown to me, but, like, the most of the data that I've seen backs up that, yeah, Kerfoot and Kapanen on the third line is like the core of that third line is probably the best for, for the Leafs, right? And then you have options for, for that left side, right? Um, mm-hmm. I guess right now it would maybe it's like Mulgan or who else would be there? Clifford maybe? Um, yeah, someone like that, I, I suppose. We're, we are quite injured, but... Yeah, I mean, losing Janssen and Mikhaev at the same time, you know, it, it hurts. And, you know, I, I don't know if Clifford is more plausible than Moore at the same position. We don't have Trevor Moore anymore. But, yeah, that's what I mean, oh, okay. because Clifford was traded for him. Um, so, I don't know if we've actually suffered a slight downgrade there. Clifford is, is fine for what he does, but he's a fourth liner. Moore was probably also a fourth liner, to be honest, but sometimes he can sort of step up. Just, it just They're just different you know, types of fourth liners, I suppose, right? Yeah, Clifford's more, like, he's a brawler without being unplayable, um, which is nice, frankly. <laughs> you know, we were, I, I trust Kyle Dubas not to acquire guys who are just kind of warm bodies that swing fists, but, yeah, it, it, I think he's perfectly fine at what he does. Yeah, So, 
in general, some of Keith's forward combinations are, are confusing to me. Um, mm-hmm. In a way that it's different from how Mike Babcock's were sometimes confusing. And maybe it's just because I don't have as much of a read on Keith, because, you know, I don't follow the Marlies that closely. Um, so this is like my first experience really you know, being a fan of a team he is, he's running. Babcock's line combinations seem to be pretty process-oriented. The only thing that kind of Babcock always just never really tried was Matthews and Marner, and we've covered this before. I don't think Matthews and Marner... Like, I don't think there's anything magical about that duo as opposed to Matthews-Nylander, or, like, if you wanted to, Matthews-Tavera. Like, we've said this many times. Any combination of two of those four players is going to be a great combination. Mm-hmm. But with Keith, it's like... It seems almost very principled, in a way, as opposed to, like, process-oriented, where he, he'll, he'll, he'll try stuff just to see how it is, and then yeah. just kind of makes a judgment kind of based on the principle of how that goes. And, okay, cool, that's it. Yeah, I think Mike Babcock, when he got something, he thought it worked. That was that. Yeah, it Whether didn't change his Riley mind. or Hainsey. Yeah, and, you know, you could say that that was one of his great weaknesses, was his stubbornness. But when he found something that he thought worked... He would keep using it until he was convinced it did not work anymore. And that took a while. Keith tries stuff all left and right. And you could say that that's more natural as a new coach, for one thing. You know, he's still getting to know the players. He's still trying things. But sometimes he'll try things that are superficially pretty weird. Like he tried Nylander Matthews Marner, which is, you know, maybe that turns out to be your pseudo Bergeron line. It didn't. You know, in the limited sample we got, and that's, you know, probably a lot to ask of it. But he's trying stuff. But sometimes he'll try stuff where it's like, when you have alternatives, you're playing Freddy Gochi at third line center, which we did for a little bit. And that's not something that I think an NHL team should ever do, if it has any other choice. So, you know, I suppose I give Keith some credit in terms of he just tries stuff, he's learning some information, and... There's a willingness to experiment that I think is probably good if he gets information on it. But it does sometimes lead him to try stuff where I'm like, I don't see what the upside is here. You've gone to this well a couple of times and we are, you know, in a playoff race. Uh, I don't know about some of those choices in terms of the things that take Kerfoot away from 3C always seem to me to make the lineup shallower without making it especially stronger on the top end. Yeah, I, so one thing yeah. I want to mention, we were talking about this in Slack, and Species, who's one of the uh, PPP's Marley's writers, made an interesting point that maybe this is kind of a product of him being an AHL coach for some time, where you kind of have to experiment, because, you know, you get an injury and you have two games in two days on a weekend, right? Most mm-hmm. AHL games are on weekends. Um, and, you know, you, there's no way you can get a call-up uh, in time in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Right, so you right. you just have to try stuff and make a very quick judgment of okay, this is either this works or it doesn't because I have another game tomorrow. Then I need to make a decision for how my lines are going to be there. Right, so it might be mm-hmm. born out of that. Um, I don't know if I don't know if that's the case, but I thought that was an interesting point by by him. Yeah, that's certainly you know plausible that you have to be more reactive, and I think also Kyle Dubas appreciates that from you know what we've gotten from Bourne, from what we've seen in general. I think that they like trying things. You know, the only rules that has to work is that famous title of a of a baseball analytics book. And that's certainly a, a big thing in progressive sports circles is a willingness to think outside the box. It's just sometimes we get outside the box and there are some decisions made that really are kind of perplexing to me. And this is one. So that said, we'll see how this develops as we approach the playoffs, if Makayev is back, I would expect him probably to go back to second line left wing. And then that naturally puts Kerfoot back at third line center. If Keefe avoids it when he has that opportunity, that will be really telling in terms of what he thinks of Kerfoot as a center. Because that, I think, would indicate lack of confidence. And if he thinks Kerfoot is not a center, then that like presents some problems for the Leafs. Because they've invested mm-hmm. in Kerfoot with the idea that, like, okay, he's going to be a center. I don't think they sign him to that deal if they think, oh, yeah, he's going to be, like, a complimentary player to, to our stars. Because, in theory, like, the Marlies should just be churning out guys to play on the the wings of, you know, Matthews, Marner, and Nylander Tavares. Yeah. 
you know, part of the value, we've talked about this in the context of the Oilers, of those superstar players, is that you can get guys who are relatively inexpensive, but who can be very effective because they fit alongside superstar players. And yeah, it would be weird to me if we kind of moved away from that. I still don't think we're at the point in the development of hockey, even though, you know, it's less position-oriented uh, and there's more of an emphasis on, you know, what forward gets in there first, what forward second, what forward third. You know, that's conventional hockey thinking now. But the center still does stuff. The center is still more to the middle of the ice and is still often the person starting a lot of the plays. Um, it's been interesting seeing that also with Matthews, by the way, who is so shot-happy and goal-oriented to an unusual degree for a center. You know, I remember when I was looking at his statistical profile way back when, in terms of scoring more goals than assists for a center, that's actually quite rare for a player of his caliber. You know, Jeff Carter was one of the few examples of that type of player. Is Stamkos another? Uh, Stamkos would be another, although he's kind of moved the other way in recent years. Yeah, for a while, he was, like, quintessential. But Yeah, and also, like, Stamkos now kind of, from what Allen has mentioned, like, he he's basically a winger who just takes face-offs. Right. And, you know, that's that's fine for them. He's out right now, actually. But, yeah, so, uh, I, I mean... He should be back for the playoffs. It, is it six to eight weeks, I thought? Yeah, uh, that's what I was seeing. So, actually, it's possible he would miss, conceivably, the first round of the playoffs or more. Yeah. I would expect, you know, Tampa's going to want him back when the games get serious. So, there's yeah, a and, bit of a pressure there. But. And it's also, it's playoff hockey. Guys play with, like, fucking... If they, if they can stand, they're playing. Yeah, like you, you go through a lot of stuff. So, yeah, just dialing back around to the Kerfoot thing, I think that it's a natural fit for him at 3C. I think that he is kind of the quintessential playmaking middle six center. And it will be interesting to me if we really seem to avoid that as the options get better, hopefully, with injury recovery. Uh, obviously, we're not seeing Andreas Janssen again this year, but we might see Mikhaev. So that's something to think about. Yes. Um... Yeah, so I was going to do a quick look at the Florida Panthers, who are locked in a death grip with us in the battle for the, the third seed in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. If you're like me, you don't think about the Florida Panthers too much, aside from situations like this. They've been easy to kind of not think about for a team in the Atlantic, because they've never been all that good in hmm, 15 years. They're still not all that good, to be honest. They have, you know, Joel Quenville who is widely considered a very good coach. I'm sure he's doing his best. But the result has been a team that is not actually all that good at pretty much anything. They're below average in Corsi. This last month, they've been way below average in Corsi. That's borne out in expected goals. They were pretty rough all year. They've been really rough in February. Uh, the only thing that they seem to do especially well is that they have a power play that looks kind of middling in terms of the chances it gets, but that outshoots its uh, its opportunities. And you would expect they could do that because all of the forwards they have on there, Jonathan Huberdeau, Alexander Barkov, and uh, Evgeny Dodonov, and Mike Hoffman, they're all good shooters. So you can expect that that power play is going to be better than chances make it look. That's fine. But that's kind of it. They're not a good penalty-killing team. Sergei Bobrovsky has had an awful year compared to his reputation. And you could say at any point he could get back to what he was, and they'd better hope so. But as long as he's playing like this, they're really not a very good team. They look like a one-line team to me. They have Huberdeau, Barkov, Dodonov, which is a terrific first line, which outscores its opposition. But that's about it. It's Hoffman and kind of not a lot else. And in dealing Vincent Trocek, they gave up their only other guy who seemed to have real top six potential. You know, Eric Halla and Lucas Walmark are fine, but they're depth guys. There's a rumor that Florida's been trying to cut payroll, which is not going to make it any easier. I mean, they made some big investments this offseason in Borowski and Quenville, and ownership may have just decided... If these are the results we're getting, this is the money we're laying out, this is where our attendance is at, we simply can't justify this kind of expenditure going forward. 
So that might make it tougher, and that might have caused the That's trajectory. That's insane, though, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's... why make that com- If you're making that commitment and saying, okay, this this has to push us in the, into a clear-cut playoff team, otherwise we're not mm-hmm. making any further investment, then you're just saying, like, it, it's either really terrible hockey analysis because no one thought the Panthers were anything more than, a, like, a, a bubble team, which is what they are. Mm-hmm. And... Like, it's just, I don't understand the thought process behind it. Like, did they think that, oh, yeah, getting Quenville and getting Bobrovsky means we are now contenders? I think they did. Because and I think they thought silly. they were going to get and, Panarin, and too. And also, if you're doing that, why are you kind of putting the plug on that after one season? You're essentially, like, book. that's the equivalent of booking your loss. It's like if someone sold all their stocks after this past week in the market. Mm-hmm. Right, it's like well, you're literally, like you, you made an investment based on, in theory, some ideas, and at the first sign of things going badly, you're like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm taking everything out. Yeah, it's it's true, and the only thing I can think of, to be quite honest, is that they thought they were going to juice attendance. I think they thought the team was going to take a big step. They were going to really get a lot of market confidence. And this year, they're still 29th in reported attendance averages. But that's not, like, then they're just stupid. Attendance doesn't no. work like that. <laughs> attendance works yeah. when you get into the playoffs, like, for a year or two, and you have a nice run. Right? Yeah. It's not based on promises. It's based on reality. It lags, right? Especially yeah, in an international sure. market like Florida. So that's that's beyond silly. And also... Right now, they have Barkov on and Huberto, basically making less combined than Mitch Marner, right? It's a probably actually slightly more, but they have Barkov and Huberto on absurdly good deals. Very, very good deals. Yeah, combined $11.8 million cap hit for both of them together. Yes. So, how long do, do those contracts run? After this year, Barkov has two years and Huberto has three more. They're going to be a lot more expensive in those times, and probably they're not going to be... They're going to be like similar level players they are now, as they are now. They're not getting better at this point. They're probably at their peaks. Mm-hmm. You're capturing so much surplus value that if you're going to pull back salary now, you are forfeiting those years of surplus value. Yeah. You're essentially saying, we have captured an amazing amount of value and we are just going to let it sit on the sidelines. Yeah, and they... Seem to have said that. I mean, there's the fans a question of Florida, here, and I do like that. That's complete bullshit. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's borne out, to be clear, this was something that Chris Johnson reported, and it does make the Trocheck trade more explicable because they seem to have gotten worse. It will be telling if they let Mike Hoffman and Dodonov walk this off season because both of those guys are going to cost a decent amount of money. Now they're both going to be thirty, so. You could make an argument that their next contracts may not end especially well. But if this team, you know, comes back again next year without those two guys and with kind of middling players to fill in the gaps, um, you run into a real question of what exactly the goal is here. Like, is there a... Like, can you build a team that can compete in Florida? You know, if you're behaving this way. It's tough because ownership has, in the last few years, at times, injected a lot of money and been willing to take losses up to a point. If that patience has run out before they've managed to get to an improved state, then it's kind of going to fizzle. You know, the team will fall back towards mediocrity. It already suggests that, like, unless Bobrovsky rediscovers his form, they get worse next year. So that's kind of hang over it in the short term which is you know more our immediate concern because we got to beat these guys the least should be a better team anything can happen over the course of 16 17 games or whatever and there is one remaining toronto florida game on the calendar uh game 76 for us which is huge obviously it could be the difference between florida coming back to life or florida being buried in their competition with us but there's not really any aspect of their team that right now looks like it's better than any aspect of our team, except their defense is not injured all to hell. They have a so better got top that going end defense because Ekblad is legitimately good. 
Yeah. But when healthy, like, I would probably take Riley Muzzin over Ekblad and Yandel. Just because Yandel, I think, is like... I mean, he's effective in his way. But he's an extremely one-way player to, like, an even greater degree than Riley. He's, he's like, kind of a Barry type, isn't he? Yeah. Um, you know, that said, he's been part of effective lines. Like, he has decent enough numbers this year in a personal capacity in terms of also, like, appearing to drive play okay. Um, as long as he's with the first line, they outscore their problems. So, I guess that's something. But they do look like a shallow team. And... I, I kind of don't know what the, what the plan is going forward there. But the Leafs should be able to outperform them, words and all. We'll see if they do it. Yeah. But that's the, the little Florida survey there. Um, We were going to do some bad takes to wrap up here. Yes, we were. Do you have one? Um, I think we actually kind of have the same one, which is just the... Mm-hmm. Um, so the NHL is looking at changing the emergency backup goalie rules. Um, and it's not. I don't think there's been much detail on what they would change the rules to but the the potential issue and this is obviously becoming a more pronounced topic in the wake of what happened with toronto and carolina the issue is that as great a story as Ayers was there was a lot of potential problems with a very big game for both teams being decided by one a goalie who was not remotely qualified right and that, that's what makes the story of him winning the game so fun and so cool from everyone's perspective except ours um, it's because he is not remotely qualified, right? He never really played at a high level. He's 42, coming in, like, cold. Like, that is a... Everyone was expecting him to be terrible. And frankly, he, he wasn't great, <laughs> right? This, okay, it's just, it's just there's ter- no way to say this without sounding like you're trying to cancel Christmas. Mm-hmm. He put up a save percentage of 800. If you do that on a consistent basis, you're unemployed. Yeah, and like you, you're not, and that's fine. The reason Carolina a won is guy. because yeah. they limited the Leafs' offense to an extreme degree. Like Carolina's skaters played amazingly, and Ayers did just enough, right? Yeah, but the the Which issue is like insanely cool. And to his credit, it's just it it does raise the scenario where it's like okay, if any team is less than that. And you have a game being thrown, you know, are you okay watching your divisional rival pick up two points uh, against a goalie who's from rec league and has a save percentage of like 700? And is also an employee of the team you are facing, right? Like there's an, an inherent conflict of interest. And I don't believe anyone who gets in that situation who is an employee of that team, I think for 99% of people, they would not like throw the game or anything because, you know, person yeah, pride's a thing. Not. And you, you know, you... One of the things about team sports is like when you put on that jersey, you feel like this is my team now, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't want to let the people down that who are around you, even if you just met them, right? Yeah. Um, but it's still a conflict of interest, and it's still not ideal. Um, so it made sense that the NHL was looking into this, and to be clear, they also looked into this uh, to change the rule a couple years ago when Scott Foster got into a game against. Um, the Winnipeg Jets. Mm-hmm. Now, this idea of the NHL kind of being proactive and being like, okay, we should like look at changing this rule because this could have gone badly, has been met with scorn somehow uh, on the part of a lot of people. Where they're like, oh, the NHL is ruining a great story. Like, this was an amazing thing that happened, and the NHL is ruining it. It's an amazing thing that happened because it was so unlikely. Yeah. Right. To be clear, I'm okay with them not doing anything about it. Yes, because this doesn't because happen Because it's very so often. unlikely. Yeah, like, it's been, like, twice in the last 50 years, give or take. You know, roll those dice. And, you know, I'm not sure that any particular imposition of a new rule to fix that is worth it in terms of the outlay versus the take-in. But you can see why they are potentially concerned about it. And this is where the bad take comes in. It's people are like, oh, so when something happens to Toronto, now we got to get rid of it. we got to fix it to benefit Toronto. How is this benefiting Toronto? It's, it's wrong in so many ways because the Leafs are not the aggrieved party here. And no one on the Leafs is saying they're an aggrieved party. Kyle Dubas no. had a comment where, you know, it was kind of a no-win situation for us, which I think got misinterpreted. Where he basically, what he was saying is, like, either 
we beat our own employee and it looks kind of awful from an optics perspective, you know, because we beat an unqualified goalie who we happen to pay or we lose mm-hmm. to that guy, right? And it's like, it, it's not a great situation either way because like, of, of how it plays out. But the Leafs are not the aggrieved party here. Carolina is. Carolina had a big divisional game potentially get ruined because they had to play an unqualified goalie for half the game. And they were so good the that other it didn't matter. The is Florida. Same, same thing. Florida's probably thinking, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> like, um, and it's worth noting, when Elliot Friedman did an article talking about that, he said he got a ton of texts blowing up his phone right in that period where the Leafs scored two goals on him real quick. On, his, on the first two shots. On airs. Yeah, and they thought, oh my god, okay, Ayers is going to get crushed, it's going to be a 9-4 final, or something like that. And they were all saying, this is insane, this is bullshit. That's the impetus to change the rule. It's not Toronto's hurt feelings, as much as that was, yeah, it was like, it made us look silly, it felt really bad as fans. Of course it did. But the impetus to change this is not coming from Toronto. And it's only from, like, the most knee-jerk, not thinking about it for one second kind of impulse that just blames the Leafs for every single bad thing that happens that they're tangentially associated to. Um, you know, I have to think this ties into the larger thing where it's like, if the league were rigging things for Toronto's benefit, so many things would be different. The Leafs would not be bottom six in the league in power play opportunities. You know, the Leafs would not uh, have a salary gap instead of a luxury tax. The Leafs wouldn't uh, have gone seven years or so at last count without a player getting suspended for hitting one of them. You know, it's just, I'm not saying they're out to get us either, but every time this stuff comes up where it's like, oh, you know, you can't get a fair shake because Toronto is is rigging everything to their benefit. No. Toronto... (laughs) Toronto would be so much more successful if that were true. It would save us a lot of misery, frankly. And this is the general... Like, I don't think the NHL really caters to big markets in general. Most of their rules are aimed at... Like, certainly, like, the big picture rules, like salary caps and whatnot, that's aimed at small markets, allowing them to be competitive. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, yeah, this is, it was just... I think the NHL was actually being smart here because this could have gone really, really poorly. Right? right? And... It probably won't because the odds of two goalies getting injured in a game are very low. Mm-hmm. But it could have gone really badly. And yeah, they're, if they can find an easy way to get rid of this potential issue, they should. And maybe maybe that's like essentially having to pay for a quote-unquote qualified goalie to be the e-bug for both teams at every game. Right? Mm-hmm. That, that would solve it. Right. Right? Like pay pay some ECHL goalie, right? So it's a low-level pro, right? Because that's all you need. You need a low-level pro. You just, you just need someone who is, like, somewhat qualified. Yeah. Right? To be, like, the e-bug for every game. Now, that's actually a big cost when you think about how many games there are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have to be available, like, you know, 82 times 31 divided by 2, right? That, that many games. You know what occurs to me is that if you really, really care about this, Stick with the e-bug system or whatever for the regular season and do this for the playoffs. You know, because mm-hmm. it at least reduces the potential leverage of having two goalies go down to a complete joke. But, yeah, you know, there are a lot of reasons to look at this that aren't just the Leafs are out to stifle something. That doesn't really matter anymore. If it, <laughs> I mean, if it's purely about Leaf pride, you'd kind of want it to happen to someone else, frankly, because that'd be less embarrassing. <laughs> but... Yeah, uh, anyway, I haven't attributed this to any particular source. I saw Ryan Lambert complaining about it because Ryan Lambert has a way of being on the wrong side of a lot of arguments in a particularly strident and obnoxious way. But yeah, it's just a a silly kind of narrative that happens because everyone hates the, the big dumb rich kids, which is what Toronto is, generally speaking. So, yeah. Yep, pretty much. Um... Yeah, it's dumb. It's a, it's, yeah. it's a very, it's a, it, it's it's so wrong on so many levels. Cause like, first off, it it, it's not even an accurate depiction of who was wronged in that game. Like, no, no one says the Leafs were wronged. No, that's it's what like makes, it's their own fault. And that's what makes it. You know? it, it, it 
it can't it can't simultaneously be the Leafs were embarrassed and the Leafs were wronged, right? Which is why it's the Leafs yeah. were embarrassed. Yeah. Right? Because that's what we were. But we had... The point of fixing it is not fixing the Leafs' embarrassment. That's done. It happened. Y- you know, we can't undo it. And the odds of it happening to them again are extremely, extremely long. You know? It's... I, you know, I, I think people are really misattributing what this responds to on the NHL's part. Because there's no evidence that they respond to the Leafs in a partisan way. And... This doesn't really benefit Toronto. So, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Um, I don't really have anything else to discuss. Do you? No, I'm good. All right, sweet. So, you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's stuff at pensionmanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. This is usually where the music comes in, but it's not. So, this is just going to be a very abrupt end to the podcast. Um, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.